0: Brothers and sisters, we come now to Colossians chapter one, verses nine through fourteen, for a time of opening up the Word of God together. Uh, here the Apostle Paul is addressing the church at Colossae, and he's speaking about his love and concern and his prayers for him. And so we're breaking into a thought where he actually speaks about how he has prayed for the Colossian church. And so from the day we heard. giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we commit our time, this particular time right now, as part of our worship service, to a listening of your word. Father, to understand that what we have uh, just read uh, ought to speak to us deeply about those things that matter most to you. And we pray so. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be the one who deeply teaches us the truth of your word so that we might live in all ways and in all things as Christians should, living to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us listening ears. Give us hearts that desire to be obedient obedient. And make our witness to this world a faithful and true witness, so that the name of Jesus will be honored and glorified in us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So each week in this series, we have anchored our study to this particular theme, that God has redeemed us in his Son, that we might be those who worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, our salvation has this purpose, which is our primary purpose for now and forevermore, that we would glorify God, that we would live to glorify God. We have been redeemed to glorify God, to give God all the worship, honor, and service that he deserves. Now, that which makes this purpose of ours so attractive What makes believers find this to be a genuinely great and good thing in their lives is this. Our salvation, and therefore our purpose, are grounded in a personal relationship and a personal knowledge of God. God is not an abstract principle. God is not some remote force or power. God is personal. And so his salvation relationship with us is personal. And so we are taught by Scripture to call him our Father, uh, to know him as our Lord, to submit to him as our King, and to follow him as our Shepherd. We can love him because he first loved us. We know that he's compassionate because he has revealed this to us in his word. David writes in Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, as a father has compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Now, in this relational and personal nature of God and our relationship with him, because of that, we find prayer almost instinctual. Uh, Not just our praises and thanksgiving, and not just the confession of our sins and the seeking of pardon and forgiveness and the restoration of fellowship, but we instinctively pray for ourselves and we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so often we come to prayer, though, not knowing how to pray, not knowing what to pray for, especially with respect to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and this is something the Apostle Paul understood and actually answered in terms of that passage in Romans chapter eight, twenty six, twenty seven, and twenty eight, where Paul has written, Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how we do not know what to pray. Let me repeat this. You know, here's the problem of memorizing a passage in three or four different translations. <laughs> It's not quite the same as you're reading it in front of you. So let me say this again. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So even when we can't really understand what is going on and we can't really grasp how to pray, the Holy Spirit is yet interceding for us. And that verse 28, God the Father is answering the Spirit's intercession by working all things out for our ultimate good. However, not all prayer is a matter of our ignorance of circumstances. Because in the matter of prayer as supplication, especially in this matter of interceding for others, we actually have the Apostle Paul giving us his own patterns of prayer, which, by following his example, teach us how to pray. Especially how to pray for one another, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what we see In this passage. In fact, we should also appreciate that what Paul gives us here actually arises out of uh, the prayers that we find in the Psalms, the Psalms themselves, which nurtured and formed Paul's own prayer life as a believing Jew. The Holy Spirit has given to Paul as an apostle, one who is revealing the mind of Christ, this ability to synthesize and to bring together so much of what is scattered throughout the Psalms with respect to how we, as believers, ought to pray for our fellow believers, how to really pray for one another. And so we come to Colossians 1, 9 to 14. It's a kind of distillation of how we should pray for one another with respect to those things that matter the most. And we look at the title... Of this particular sermon. And we see that I've I've stated it as a mandate. Because scripture teaches us. We must pray for others. And we must pray for one another. In the body of Christ. Why? Because this kind of prayer. Supplication and intercession. Is also a part of our worship of God. It's part of the purpose. For which Christ has saved us. And so with respect to this morning, we can state our main theme of this passage this way. In our calling to worship God in spirit and in truth, we must pray and intercede for one another in those matters that matter the most for the glory of God. We have this calling to worship God in spirit and in truth, and therefore we must pray for one another, but specifically, We need to pray for those matters which matter the most for the glory of God. Now, that's that's the overall teaching of this passage as we seek to follow the example of the Apostle Paul. Praying for those things that matter the most for the glory of God. And Paul shows us in this passage what these things are, what we should faithfully and regularly pray for one another. And in this passage we can categorize four particular things. We should be praying for one another, first, for the right kind of faith. Secondly, for the right kind of fruit. Thirdly, for the right kind of fortitude. Lastly, for the right kind of foundation. Each one of these items we see in this passage, is actually grounded in the teaching of the Psalms in their totality. But also we find these things reflected in the very first Psalm. And so as we move through the Colossian passage, you might put a piece of paper in Psalm 1 because we want to look at it as well. Now this morning I'm not going to be so ambitious as to think that I can cover all four of these points. We'll look at the first two. We will look at what it means to pray for one another with respect to the right kind of faith and the right kind of fruit. So we begin with verse 9. This teaches us to pray for the right kind of faith. Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The right kind of faith that a Christian is to have is a faith that is filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's what we should be praying for one another as we pray for our fellow Christians that our fellow Christians would be this way, that they would have this right kind of faith. But let's break this down in terms of what this means. First, Paul mentions with respect to the knowledge of God's will. With respect to the knowledge of God's will, there's only one place we can go as Christians, and that is to the word of God. The scriptures contain the whole counsel of God, And that whole counsel of God comes to its full and final expression in Christ. So Paul is saying that we must pray for others to be filled with the knowledge of God's will through the Scriptures. That God's people would be Bible readers, learning the sacred Scriptures that make us wise unto salvation in the knowledge of Christ, uh, learning these sacred Scriptures, Uh, that are breathed out by God, uh, which teach us and reprove us and correct us and train us in the righteousness of God's will so that we are equipped for every good work, which is defined by God's truth and God's will. So to be filled with the knowledge of God's will requires that believers be deeply invested and deeply involved in the reading and the study of Scripture. Then Paul adds to this idea, this most significant and important qualifier. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And this is referring to the uh, lively and active ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church and in the life of believers. Because the Holy Spirit not only inspired, breathed out the word of God, but it's the Holy Spirit who works in the hearts and minds of believers to illuminate the meaning and understanding of the word of God to us so that we can know the scriptures with a genuine spiritual wisdom and a spiritual understanding. But let me put some constraints upon this. Let me, let me say what this doesn't mean. Some people really for the last 2000 years of Christianity, but it seems to be a kind of plethora in today's evangelical world, some people have the idea that this work of the Spirit means that all I need to do is to get alone with the Holy Spirit and with my Bible because He's working in my heart and mind and He will reveal to me all of the spiritual wisdom and understanding individually apart from anyone else. And so with with the Holy Spirit, and with that personal trinity of me, myself, and I, I can understand what the Bible means. I don't need anyone else. That idea is one of the worst lies that has ever been perpetrated upon the people of God. that is so contrary to the word of God. It rests upon essentially only one passage in scripture of two verses and it's the deepest misreading of this single set of two verses we find it in 1st John chapter 2 20 to 21 where John writes these words but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge I write to you because not because you do not know the truth but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth So, this anointing by the Holy Spirit is claimed to give to the believer individually this ability and this right to understand the Bible by himself. But, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit doesn't teach these people the original Greek. Because the word you in this passage is not individual, it's not personal, it's not singular, it's plural it refers to the whole body of believers. It's a reference to the true church, not to individuals. God has anointed the church with his Holy Spirit in order to lead the church, the body of Christ, believers together into all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And that means that if you're not part of that process, if you're not anchored into the body of Christ, you will not have this ministry of God in your life. You will not be gaining the spiritual wisdom and understanding that Paul actually prays for. So what does Paul mean? He means that we need to pray for one another to pursue all spiritual wisdom and understanding with respect to the Holy Scriptures as the Holy Spirit has given that wisdom to the true church even the true church over the past 2,000 years. And Paul addresses how that process happens within the body of believers within the New Testament church. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. Uh, There Paul writes that Christ has given to the church spiritual leaders, the original apostles and New Testament prophets, as well as evangelists and shepherd teachers who have this job to equip the saints for ministry in order to build up the body of Christ so that we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That, by the way, is the right kind of faith that Paul has us praying for and for one another so that we and our fellow believers will no longer be spiritual children tossed to and fro by every wind of humanly contrived doctrine or teachings, teachings that are actually the crafty and deceitful schemes of spiritual lies. So when Paul prays for the right kind of faith, he is praying for believers to personally study the Word of God, who personally have the Holy Spirit, but not in isolation, but as part of the congregation of those that the Father has declared righteous in Jesus Christ. This prayer, by the way, for the right kind of faith, is grounded in the Psalms, even in Psalms 1, which I would encourage you to open up to. There the psalmist writes these words, the kind of introduction to all the rest of 149 psalms. Psalm 1, The gateway into everything else that we find in the Psalms. And here's how it begins. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Now that expresses the right kind of faith. The faith where believers delight in the word of God and make the scriptures their daily study and meditation. Believers are supremely blessed to do this because this is the way we come to understand the way of the Lord. And we are rescued from the ways of the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers. And if you jump down to verses 5 and 6 you would see that the psalmist here envisions this happening within the congregation. The gathering of the righteous happens to be in view. But then if we return to verse 3, notice the benefit and blessing of the one who has this right kind of faith mentioned in verse 3. That he, such a man, such a believer, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. Now this is why in the Colossians passage, Paul's next prayer concern is about having the right kind of fruit. A true believer yields his fruit in its season And that shows us that Paul's thinking is guided and formed by this immersion in the Psalms, especially Psalm 1. And so we come then, as Psalm 1 does, to what Paul says next in verse 10, the right kind of fruit. Verse 10, Paul says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's a fact of the human condition and the human predicament that every person's life produces fruit. The question is, what kind of fruit? How we walk in this life as a Christian has the greatest influence and effect with respect to the fruit that we bear. It's effect upon ourselves but most significantly upon others. You know, Psalm 1 begins with the con- with the concern that some people walk according to the counsel of the wicked. They listen to the ideas and principles of the world opposed to God and they take up these ideas and they follow them and they spread them those ideas to others, and therefore they will be bearing that kind of fruit, fruit that reflects the world as it stands in its opposition against God. So Paul's prayer here is that our walk will be in a manner that's worthy of Christ, fully pleasing to Christ, so that we will bear good fruit. You see, only walking in this godly way, only Walking with Christ, will we bear that right kind of fruit? And that right kind of fruit in our lives will come because we have, first of all, had the right kind of faith in which we're grounded in the Word of God. Now, as a reminder to the era that we live in right now, the Apostle Paul's prayer means... We cannot, we must not let the world set the agenda for the church. We must not let the world set the standards for how we as Christians must live. The world's agenda and standards have never faithfully or accurately provided a way forward that is worthy of the Lord or fully pleasing to Christ. Instead, we must pray for one another to, to walk the agenda that Christ has set before us. That we would walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, that fully pleases Christ. And all that is the necessary condition of bearing fruit in every good work. Now, we're not left without the New Testament telling us and describing for us what this agenda of walking in this manner that is pleasing to Christ. We're not left in the dark at all. I would invite you to turn to Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, because the Apostle Paul tells us what this agenda looks like. So reading those verses, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and for good works. So here's the agenda. First, presented in the negative, verse 12, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, which in the Bible always include all behavior, attitudes, dispositions that are contrary to the biblical definition of morality, and especially those things that violate the biblical definition of marriage and the teachings that are inherent in the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. All immorality is involved here, but especially all sexual immorality is included here. And we as Christians are to renounce such things, reject such things as any possible agenda for Christian living. I don't think I can say this strongly enough, With respect to us in the Christian community, Uh, it was tragic and shocking in the past week or so if you heard and read uh, what has come out fully about Rabbi Zacharias. Now, I'm not going there about this man and what he did that has now broken what looked to be like a wonderful reputation as a world-renowned Christian and apologist for the Christian faith. I want to mention something else. I, I read um, I read this story, the testimony of a student body president, a young woman, at Calvin University, once Calvin College, Calvin University, a school that stands in the Christian Reformed tradition. And what was so incredibly sad was she was given a platform as student body president to speak to the fact that she has come out of the closet completely. And she's so grateful for the support of the school. And so grateful for the support of her fellow students at this school and so grateful for the hundreds of people who wrote pieces in response to her testimony in in, in the article, who supported her for her courage and coming out. And again and again, what was said was, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you, all of you, everything about you, you have nothing to be ashamed of. Now, this was deeply troubling to me. And heartbreaking. But this is the awful lie that's being perpetrated upon the church. And our own beloved PCA is not being protected as it should from this as well. There are serious, serious issues here. Because the second part of the agenda here that Paul lays out, the positive thing is that we as Christians are called to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And Paul says, here's the reason why. Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. Now, the lawlessness that Paul is speaking of here reflects all of those aberrant behaviors that were counted as lawless under the Old Testament. All of those things that were exhibiting a, a brokenness of human character and human morality were considered lawlessness. And Christ redeemed us from that in order to purify us for Himself as a people who are zealous for good works. So, you see, people of God, we have got to pray for the right kind of fruit. We have got to pray for the lives of our fellow believers, that they will truly bear the fruit of genuine and true righteousness, and that the fruit that is produced in our lives will be that true fruit of the Spirit of God, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. We must pray for one another to have this right kind of fruit. And like the psalmist says in Psalm 1 verse 3, this fruit that will come in its season At the right time to bring honor and glory to God. And Paul notes this gift from God. When we have this right kind of faith and we bear this right kind of fruit. It's found at the end of verse 10. We actually will increase in our knowledge of God. Now, brothers and sisters, this is as far as we can go this morning. But I trust we have learned this much. We must pray for one another. We must pray that God would give to each one of us, according to the design of the things that Paul has stated, that obviously matter the most to God. We must pray That we would have the right kind of faith that's grounded in the truth. Not in the twisted ideas about scripture, but in the faithful truth of the scripture. And we must pray for one another to bear the right kind of fruit. And if we love one another in the body of Christ, we will pray for one another this way. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's pray. Oh, God, help us. Help us, we pray. The world's agenda is infiltrating the church with incredible speed and with an incredible pernicious twisting of what the scriptures teach. And so we pray for one another, and especially for leaders, to have the right kind of faith. A faith that is grounded in your truth. A faith in which the Holy Spirit is surely guiding and leading to all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that, Lord, we can live lives that are worthy of you. Lives that would truly bear fruit. Every sort of good works in terms of fruit. We pray this, Father, that you might do this with us, bless us in these things, that we might grow in the knowledge of you. We live in terrible times, Father. Please, we pray, uh, remind us again of this mandate. We must pray for one another. In Christ's name, amen.